This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. One of the benefits of advising companies and speaking around the world about the topic of artificial intelligence in business is being able to travel to very AI talent-dense cities and be able to interview great folks. We've done some excellent articles about the AI ecosystem in Austin, and one of my very favorites was when I spent nearly a week in Montreal and was able to interview, uh, I think, over a dozen different AI startups in the Montreal area, meeting folks in coffee shops, going to headquarters, going to co-working spaces, and getting to know so much of the rich ecosystem up there. And one of the firms I got to interview that was actually introduced to me by none other than one of the the godfathers of machine learning himself, Yashua Bengio, was Imagia. Imagia uses AI for medical analysis. Our guest this week is the co-founder of Imagia, Alexandra Labouthier. Uh, Alexandra, again, was a kind introduction from Yashua Bengio some three or four years back. Yashua Bengio himself was actually on the podcast, I think it was five or six years ago. It's crazy how time flies. Alexandra was a great guest back then, and I decided it'd be a great idea to have him back on the program. And he speaks to us this week about personalized medicine before and after artificial intelligence. We all hear the buzzword of personalized medicine, the idea that maybe all of us would get a very customized treatment based on our health history or based on our genotype or whatever the case may be. Uh, But where does artificial intelligence actually fit into the mix to enable personalized medicine? Um, We've done some great interviews on this topic. We had the founder of Metadata on an episode uh, some year and a half ago, which was a very popular episode in life sciences. Alexandra brings his perspective to bear in this episode, and I think it's enlightening when it comes to how personalized medicine might come to be. This is a firm that spent the last six or seven years focused at the very bleeding edge here in one of the most AI-savvy cities in the world of Montreal. They've got a great headquarters. I think my AI in Montreal article is actually a, a photo with myself and Alex in their headquarters, and they're doing excellent work, so it's great to be able to highlight them here again on the show. So without further ado, this is Alexandre Leboutier of Imagia here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Alex, it's been some two years since we caught up last during my big I think it was a 10-day trip up in Montreal. I talked to dozens of companies. You were one of the very first after Yashua Bengio said, hey, if you're coming up here, here's one of the guys you have to meet. And I'm so glad we met back then. Um, Since then, you've done a lot of work. I want to talk use cases today. You guys are oncology folks, diagnostic folks. I want to first paint the picture pre-AI of what it looks like to pull different data sources together and to make a personalized recommendation for oncology treatment, kind of what the challenges are, what the process looks like now, if you wouldn't mind starting with that. I can even say with, let's say, AI in the last few years, it's still challenging because the the data are siloed. Yep. There's lack of insights in data and network and data privacy are a very big issue of today. Course. Of course. And then you want to make sure that whatever discovery that is made, you have a clinical adoption to that. So those kind of four issues are very important when you talk about diagnosis you want to make sure that you reduce the numbers of misdiagnosis but also treatment response so once you identify the specific disease that you have we're all made different so you want to make sure that if in your let's say unfortunate cancer detection or alzheimer when we'll have treatment or cardiac uh, disease if there's two or three treatment possible you want to pick the, the best one right away and not do, okay, let's try this one. If it doesn't work, we'll, yeah, we'll change it. Yeah, you want to flip a coin about those things, yeah. 
Yes, and that was the case for, for my father. Unfortunately, that's the case for multiple people that at some point the treatment will not work anymore. So you want to get a heads up in advance so you can switch therapy or make sure that you have the good quality of life. So you brought up four kind of, I guess we could call them hurdles or challenges. Could, could you walk through what maybe we want to look through the eyes of a doctor? I, I like to paint mental pictures for the audience to really make the, the, the podcast click in their mind. Can you explain maybe what it looks like? We've got a cancer, a patient comes in, they have lung cancer. Maybe it's a, an older person of, you know, maybe they're, they're from the Middle East uh, originally, you know, whatever the genetic and other factors are, you know, whatever the other diseases and whatnot that they're struggling with. And now we've got to figure out of these three or four ways we could go about this in terms of chemo or whatever, which of these are, are we going to take? What's the process look like now to make that very hard and very big decision? So the data will come from multiple source. Uh, demographic is important. In that case, smoker is important. The diagnosis from pathology, the images is a very important part. And I would say most of the time images are used on a retrospective basis. They're used to say, oh, there's a problem or the problem have evolved. Where we can look at the images, and this is very coming interesting, is that just by looking at the images, you can, not from a human perspective, but from an AI perspective, you can see radiomics feature, so imaging feature that will link to specific diagnostic or even more specific treatment response. So in cancer, and we've made a nice post testimony, there's a lot of promise in immuno-oncology. Some immuno-oncology treatment where stellar people have been cured. But unfortunately for other patient, it didn't go that well and patient have died. So the question is, if you're in a bad shape of having a specific cancer, will you, will, should you get um, uh, immuno-oncology? And the answer is yes, if you can have better, let's say diagnostic or digital diagnostic tools. So just by looking at the images, we were able to show that there are about 11 feature in the image that really links to the response of specific immuno-oncology treatment. So that's very useful for both the clinicians, the patient, and the pharma, because you'll be able to take a better decision. So you go this treatment or go new clinical trial, for example, if nothing on the market will work for your specific case. Got it. And unfortunately, there's maybe few percent of people that goes on clinical trial because of lack of insight. So AI is really helping on, on that point. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just to uh, paint the before and after here, I'm, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. A doctor may have to almost do their own research on what the state of the art is and, and what these demographic factors mean and what existing treatments might have been used for someone like this and that might work for someone like this. It sounds like what you're saying could be interpreted in two ways, and, and you're on the cutting edge here, so you could tell me if both are relevant or if only one. One is sort of artificial intelligence figuring out, based on these factors in this person, looking in all these other sources, is there a recommended course? Is there a probable best you know, scenario here? That's maybe one thing. And another facet would be uh, leveraging AI on all of these isolated corpuses 
corpi, I don't know, you're the technical guy here, of data and figuring out are there aggregate insights that we haven't even found yet where, oh, as it turns out, when we really crunch the numbers and, and we look across these different strata and variables, this cluster is responding three times better than this general group for this kind of treatment. So is, is AI able to kind of find what's known, so to speak, and then also dive in and find what's unknown? If I, I'm trying to mentally visualize again what, what you're saying AI is fitting into. Tell me if I'm wrong here or where I'm right. So there's current standard of care and people have to uh, apply to that. The idea is to bring new digital tests that will look at, at all those datas and not only enable AI researcher to craft model, but enable AI clinical researcher to build AI model automatically. So two years ago, we were building AI model and architectures more like uh, voodoo art. Numbers of layers, uh, numbers of parameters, and I, I can continue on and on. That was not very uh, efficient. So instead of having to pair AI researcher with the clinicians to discover what data is relevant and also how to tag those data because there's a lot of manual tagging that is going on to do those AI discovery. When you do manual tagging, you introduce bias yeah, into the data. Yeah. So instead you want machine to do, let's say automatic localization heat map if it's an image. If it's a data, you want the machine to do those clusters. If it's text, you want NLP to outline some of the important concepts. So don't think about AI as just the end product. Think about AI that it can accelerate every step of the way to be able to make those discoveries. So going back to your question, sure, yeah. what you want essentially is automatically build the AI architecture that will fit the accuracy that the clinician wants under specific constraints. And then let me give you a, a very stupid example. You might have a model that works 99% of the time, but that's a very bad model. Because if I'm not specific and I tell you, this model should work on both cancer patient and non-cancer patient, it might work 99, 100% of the time cancer patient and fail all the time on the 1% that are yeah. cancer. So you have to go down to subpopulation, type of nodules, type of genetic mutation. Uh, do you want the model to be very sensitive and give you a lot of false positive that you can triage after? So it's not just to, get, to give you the, the highest accuracy on a global perspective. The clinician might have specific constraints. So what, what you want the AI to do is to automate that, to, to build those AI model with as less as possible human bias input. Yeah, and that's, that's a, it's a tall order because, you know, oh man, you know, humans are really going to be biasing this stuff if we let them label these images by their own criteria. But geez, I mean, to trust a machine to do that well, to, to train a machine to do the labeling we have to train the machine. Could that be argued to be just automating bias? I mean, so there's there's a real balance here in structuring and building these systems that we feel good saying, oh, they're less biased than a person. That's why what you want in a sense, so you want active learning. So you want human in the loop 
yeah. to validate some aspects of the model automatic creation that if you ask the question to two experts, they will give you a similar answer. If you ask a question to two or three experts and there's too many variation in their answer, that's not a good question to ask. So that's important to build active learning in the loop to make sure that as the model builds up the solution, it makes sense. This is a really good point. And actually, that's a lesson that transfers to every listener tuned in right now. Human in the loop, I mean, is going to have to be a part of, you know, occasionally there's AI systems where the vendor basically does all the heavy lifting, right? Um, you got a drone that's going to go inspect your oil well equipment or something. And the people at the oil company aren't tuning the the whatever, you know, it's like it, this thing's already been trained on taking pictures and they're just going to get a set of that information. But for many of you who are listening in, you're going to be, you know, constructing systems and have to do some of this long tail human in the loop expertise layered in to make sure we're steering and building something smart. What you said, Alex, that I think is important for everybody to bear in mind is that those criteria that, that the system is being checked on, we want to make sure that if we get a bunch of experts in a room, we're checking on criteria that folks who really get it are going to be on the same page about. They're, they're not contentious issues. They're the things we can really feel good about human feedback as, as opposed to the things where there's still wiggle room. It feels like that's an important tenet of this human in the loop long tail game for any business. So human in the loop should be there when you design the models with the clinicians. It has to be from the clinicians because they know what's their problem. AI people don't know. So it has to be from the clinical ground up. And once it's, it's in the practice, you have to also have a human in the loop. So deep learning was not designed with an AI explainability in mind, but you have to provide some insights why the machine is telling you this answer or why the machine is telling you that answer. So as we work a lot with images, genomic data, and other type of data that you can visualize, there's a way to show activation map or to show overlay AI, let's say activation or triggering feature to the clinicians so that the clinicians say, oh yes, I can relate to why the machine is telling me uh, yes or no. Yeah. And I have a very counter example to that. We were working on images to detect response to chemotherapy. And the model was performing very well, very surprisingly. And when we look at what the model was looking at, the model was not looking at the tumors. The model was looking at the heart. Because the more chemo you get, the more there's, there's effect on the heart. So the model was not looking at the right thing, even if it was performing well. So you have to be sensitive to that when you build the model to make sure that uh, not only it makes sense from a clinical perspective, but the underlying metrics that the model measure are correct. Yeah, and of course, only a human's gonna know, oh, for this kind of decision, we can really only base it off of these sorts of features and we should be weighing things in this kind of way. Otherwise, even if it's right, we're not going to want to lean on it for serious decisions about people's lives. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about what this looks like in, in an example. Uh, you know, you just mentioned one, but maybe we could talk about um, uh, how sort of we're, we're leveraging these, these different clusters of data to be able to extract these sort of insights minus as much human bias as we can, we can pull out in a particular case. I know one of the things you're focusing on with your firm is in 
learning from siloed data, siloed data that needs to stay safe and, you know, not just anonymized, but need, needs to stay right where it is. Um, but being able to pull insights from a number of different clusters of data of that kind that are going to stay separate, but still find the aggregate learnings that will, like you said, pull together enough of a, a number of people with that condition, because you, you mentioned half a million people. Okay, how many of them had this kind of colon cancer and were below the age of 40? Oh, it's only six? That's not really a good number, right? I mean, we, we might want more people. than That's one random example. I'm sure you have better ones. But going into these silos, I presume, tell me if I'm wrong, Alex, is going to let you get to that critical mass of people with certain conditions that might just not, we might not have enough in one place. How do you go about that? How do you keep that data safe, but also extract those learnings that are going to let us know the new signals to make smarter, better decisions for patients based on? So you're, you're right on spot in terms of the small data. So even if you're looking at big data, sometimes in some of our hospitals, there's millions of patient data. But when you go to specific disease, let's pick lung cancer, non-small cell, with specific type of mutation, even the largest hospital in the world have 50 cases. So it's very difficult to build an AI model on 50 cases that will have clinical performance. So even from a big data, the right data is very, very small. And then there's another concept drift where the data will vary from one center to the other based on the population that will go there, based on the type of equipment, maybe based on their local practice. So it's very important to be able to capture that variability. Otherwise, if you you develop a model in California, that model will work well in California, but will not work well in in New York. it's it's really important to make sure that you capture the diversity in population. So that's why federated learning for us was very important. And just to boil it down to simple terms, the data stays in the hospital. Data is not commercialized. It's only the discovery that is commercialized. So it's the model that get trained simultaneously with all those institutions that are part of that federated learning where typically in typical federated learning architecture, the model is known in advance. So you build a model and you train it distributedly amongst every center. Yeah, That's the wrong approach because you don't know a priori what should be your model until you have actually trained. So, so that's a big subtlety that we have implemented is while we're doing federated learning on not only text, but very complex data like 3D images, we build the model as we go. So it's an automatic building of the model as we perform federated learning. And that's very different than what we've been taught in school. Like when you do science, you, you, you make a hypothesis yep. and you try to prove it or disprove it. Let the AI actually tell you what's the optimal architecture for the problem that you're solving. In that case, where there's a lot of variability in the data, where the data is varied a lot. And visually, if you visualize the architecture that or self-evolving AI have produced, it's very different from a squeeze net or any, any type of typical neural net that you've seen. It's it's very different. No human would have thought to have an architecture that looked like that. So AI is, I would say, influencing 
or next hypothesis. And this is the very well where the human and machine interaction will come, will probably come up with new ways to discover or new approach to solve hybridin disease, such as cancer or other metabolic disease. I won't lie to you. I mean, that admittedly sounds like a very, very tall order. Clearly, you folks are working on a hard problem here because it sounds as though that this approach of sort of the architecture that evolves as we go is almost its own really big and intimidating technical consideration on top of all the other hard parts about running the business that you're running. I would imagine this is the case, but I might be wrong. I would imagine that humans would have some hypotheses of, okay, we have some inclination based on, you know, talking to the the PhDs and the folks that are treating these diseases, speaking amongst ourselves, tweaking around on our own, you know, computers as to sort of what we might do here. We have some ideas and maybe we'll run that against what the computer comes up with itself and just see how often we get beat out by this evolving system. I would suspect that both of those horses would be in the race just in case, right? Just in case the, the creativity of the machine, we, we kind of want a human in the loop there as well. Is that safe to say? Do we, do we, put, a, do we put a human horse in this race? Or are, are, are you folks at the point where you're more or less going to let it evolve in its own path and understand that you're, you're just not going to beat that with some pre-presumed uh, set of, of features? So it's, it's very different that, and I'll go on the error rate, uh, the the error that a human will make are very different than the error that the machine will make. And typically those type of errors, or you can look the reverse, the, the, the quality of the prediction will be in a different space. So human might be very good in predicting this type of data and machine will be very good at predicting this type of data. So it's very important to understand where the errors actually belongs. So you can combine different kind of tests together. And typically, this is what you have in healthcare. If you bring human and you ask the right questions to the human, you will increase the overall accuracy. So going back to, to a specific uh, question, of an example of what we have done. So I'm going to focus again in lung cancer, because this is the highest killer uh, cancer that we have on the planet, unfortunately. What you want to build is, a, is an architecture discovery that will have no human bias. So you don't know what you are looking from at an image perspective. Let's say you look at a 3D CT scan and you want to build a model. What you want to have from a human perspective when you label the data is not actually segment all the tumors. Because if you do that, there will be too much variability between experts. You will just ask them, is there a lesion in that sub-volume? Without telling the machine, is this malignant or this benign? If you ask that question to many experts, the answer might be concordant. So this is the way we have developed the, like the, the active learning and the auto-labeling technique. We try to go in a way where you'll get as much information from the expert while minimizing the error that they can input in the data. And we were able to do that on a, on a small data set because it's difficult to get a lot of data from lots of hospital with an accuracy from a model that was generated automatically, much better than uh, using traditional ResNet or SqueezeNet yeah, yeah. by big factor. So this is really showing that 
we can automate some of the discovery part to build those digital tools that in the end will assist the clinician in making their decision. Should that patient go into a specific drug from this pharma, specific drug from that pharma for this and that reason? From my standpoint, as someone who doesn't write the code like yourself, it, it would seem as though there would be great promise in almost anything discovery in this category. You know, whether we're looking at telemetry data from industrial machines or we're looking to develop drugs, if there's a way to put in as little bias as possible and coax forth the patterns and make the predictions that are as reliable as possible without even the bias at the level of architecture, that could be tremendously promising. It's also pretty clearly, from my outside perspective, cutting edge. In other words, maybe not every team and every application is going to be prepared to have those kind of evolutionary models. Obviously, you guys have the technical talent up there. You know, one of the few cities with as much uh, ML density as, uh, as you guys have to put that together. So it seems like not the easiest way, but it seems like long term, at least given what ML is today and deep learning is today, maybe the most promising. Is that, is that where you're leaning? So Montreal has been named the best place in North America to, to do AI by Financial Times. But what you don't want is spend three years with a top AI scientist to design a model. So you want to design those models automatically and have those AI scientists design the machine that will automatically design the model. Yeah, yeah. And those automatic generation can, can go in few hours to few weeks and it's fully automated. So this is the beauty of trying to build this AI pipeline where clinicians is in the driver's seat and AI machine learning specialists are building the tools to really empower them or empower the pharma to make the discoveries on their data because data are sensitive from a patient perspective, but they're very sensitive from a corporation perspective. So for example, we've been asked by numbers of large pharma to work on their data, but they don't want us to see the data. So our technology is perfect for that. They can, they can use our technology with a platform as a service to build that AI pipeline and uh, make sure that their AI scientists can work on what they are good at. Just to uh, extrapolate out, as, as I think about our listeners as we close out the interview here and kind of what bits and chunks of what you're up to, they can apply to what they're doing. Many people listening in are going to be in healthcare or life sciences. Some are not, but either way, I think there's there's insights to extract. The approach that you're talking about of having the experts build the systems that can develop their own architecture in order to solve the problem, this feels to me like a tough way to solve the problem in terms of expertise required, but also from what it sounds like you presume the most promising approach, given what deep learning is today, for really getting the best results. So it feels like it's, it's not the easy road, but it's, it's maybe the most promising road for doing discovery as well as we can. Is that, is that a safe nutshelling for people listening in? You want to remove as much as possible and quantify the bias in the data, in the labeling technique, in the model that you are creating. And you have to think about an ecosystem. And it has to be allocentric. So hospital has to have a buy-in into that. Clinician has to have a buy-in into that. And the large pharmas and medical device has to have a buy-in into that. So this is why we think that by deploying our technology in multiple hospitals and as well enable pharma to use it on their own data or mix of data while preserving privacy 
and generating model that can be tested on live data is very powerful. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I mean, you know, you and I caught up two years ago. You've done a lot of exciting things since then. I hope if we catch up two years from now, hopefully it'll be in person once this virus blows over and I'll get to visit all your great restaurants up there and get to visit your offices again once there's people there. I'm sure there'll be more exciting stuff to discuss when we get there. But I think for all those those of you tuned in, you're definitely listening to The Cutting Edge. And for those of you in healthcare, hopefully you've got a lot of new ideas about what the future might hold. Alex, thank you so much for being able to join us again on the show. Always a pleasure, Dan. And hopefully we'll speak in uh, less than two years. Yes, fingers crossed. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Alexandra for being our guest today. And a big thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. Because you're already a listener, I want to give you a big thank you. And I hope we can also have you as a subscriber and a reader here at Emerge. If you want to make sure you have all of our latest interviews on AI use cases and ROI and strategy best practices, as well as receive our AI articles and our infographics as soon as they go live, then you'll want to make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. You can go to emerj.com. And up at the top right, you can click on the button for subscribe, and you can subscribe to our newsletter there and make sure you can stay ahead of the ML curve. Again, our job is to be able to communicate the kind of information that allows you to find new AI opportunities and to make the most of AI ROI for, again, a non-technical audience. So if you want more of that, be sure to stay subscribed via email and otherwise keep it locked right here for this podcast. I look forward to catching you next week here on the AI and Business Podcast.